Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So, good evening. Nice to be back here in Cambridge. See some familiar faces. It's been a couple of years now that I've been coming to CIMC and uh, have a lot of appreciation for this center. It's the first residential Vipassana center in the United States and I think the longest running one. So it's, uh, yeah, I just feel really honored to, to be here uh, and get to spend time together. Uh, so I was going to give a talk on the middle way and uh, then I got in touch with Chris Crotty, who runs the Against the Stream Center, and uh, somehow I told them I would give a talk on the Middle Way also. And so, rather than giving the same talk, the same talk two nights in a row, <laughs> I thought I'd talk about something else related tonight. So, if you want to hear my talk on the Middle Way, you can come tomorrow night <laughs> to uh, Against the Stream, which I understand is just just uh, a half a mile from here. So I I wanted to talk tonight, well I say it's related because um, both the middle way and the the topic I want to talk about tonight are about how we use or relate to our meditation practice and and really this whole path. So the middle way is um, one very important uh, understanding for kind of the central ethos behind the, the whole practice and teachings of the Buddha. And um, I, I want to talk about another uh, aspect of the path that's also about how we approach and relate to, um, to our practice and to this, this whole endeavor of uh, spiritual development or contemplative practice, however you want to, uh, want to name it. So um, to start off with a little example here, so if um, if I'd never seen this bell before, and you told me to, uh, and I said, oh, how do you use it? And you said, well, you take this striker, and you hold it, and then just very, and then you just tap the side of it, right? And I went like this. So you see what you know what's going to happen, right? Those of you who can see the bell, yeah. It's a little bit loud, right? And then if you said to me, oh, no, no, Oren, you're, you're, you're holding the striker wrong. Turn it around the other way. That's, that's not the handle. <laughs> this is the handle. Try striking it that way. So it works a little better that way. It's a little bit softer. Kinda, it kind of clangs, right, when you, hit, when you hit the wooden part against it. So why am, I, why, am I use, why am I talking about this? Well, meditation is a tool it's a tool for training our minds and, uh, and transforming the way that we understand and relate to life. Um, but if you're, if you're not holding that tool right, you might not get the desired effect, right? It might, might sound kind of harsh or tinny. Uh, you think about other tools that we use in our life. Um, Ever go to the dentist and have them tell you that you're brushing too hard? Wearing away your enamel. Lighten up, man. <laughs> so sometimes we get that feedback. It's like, you know, we might be using the tool 
diligently brushing our teeth twice a day, but if we're applying too much force, you can actually wear away your gums and even your enamel. So it's not so much necessarily the tool, but how we're holding it and how we're using it. And so um, we can learn a lot of different meditation techniques, and we're quite fortunate, I think, to live in a time and a place where we have access to you know, many really wonderful meditation instructions and techniques and different traditions, even just within Buddhism. And then you go outside Buddhism, there's this, this whole world of spiritual development that's available. But to come back to this question of how are we holding it, you know, is the orientation such that um, we're using the tools properly in the way that they're intended to produce the, the desired results. Uh, so this is what I'd like to explore a little bit tonight um, in terms of two aspects of the, of the path uh, that, from my perspective, really speak to how we approach and use the tools of meditation and the, really just the whole teachings. So the first of these is about our perspective. It's about our, our outlook, sometimes in the teachings referred to as our view, our view, how we're looking at things. And so if the way that we're looking at things is not um, in line, again, you know, we might end up with things upside down. And uh, there are different aspects to this, to the, to the view that's the most conducive to using these tools properly. The analogy that I like to use, or a couple analogies I like to use for this. So one is um, trying to open a jar. And you're trying to open the jar, and you're, you're putting all of your force, and you can't get it open. And you say to someone, can you help me open this? And they oh yeah, you're turning the wrong way. <laughs> right? So we can be putting a lot of energy, a lot of effort, all of our strength into something. But if, if we're turning in the wrong direction, if our view isn't accurate, you know, we might not get anywhere. We might actually have results counter to our intention. We might end up tightening the lid rather than loosening it based on how we're looking at it. So this is one, this is one analogy for our view or our approach or perspective. Uh, another is using a map. So if uh, before we had cell phones, most of us here in the room remember when we used to use real maps. <laughs> you know, or if you've ever been camping or hiking, you know, you, you've got your trail map and uh, use a compass to figure out which way is north. And so if, uh, if someone gives us directions and we have a map, um, but that map is not oriented correctly, we could spend a lot of time going in a certain direction and end up really confused because it's not matching up. And, you know, I've been walking for hours now and I still haven't come to the first landmark. What's going on? We realize, oh, my map's not oriented correctly. Right? I, never, I never checked where True North was before starting out on the journey. So this is, this is the, uh, the importance of right view. It's really setting up the whole framework 
for the direction that we're going in with meditation practice. So what is the what is the um, what is this perspective? What is this view that's so essential to using these teachings in the way that they were intended to help us uh, to help us understand our lives and uh, suffer less? both in ourselves and in our communities and our relationships. And not just to suffer less, but actually to flourish, to realize our potential. So there, there are two aspects to it. The first <clears throat> is that what we do and say matters. And this is really important, that our actions have consequences. And, you know, for uh, most of us today in the West, it's, you know, pretty obvious. Um, in the time of the Buddha, this was not actually the case because there were many, many different views. And so anyone who's familiar at all with Eastern philosophy or Asian thought knows that there's different views on uh, what this whole experience of being alive is. And one view is that this whole world is illusion, is maya. Right, And so out of that comes sometimes the interpretation that, well, if it's all just a dream, then you know what we do doesn't really matter because it's just an illusion, right? So it's a very dangerous kind of idea, right? Because if this is all just a dream, then I can do whatever I want to. It doesn't really matter because you're not real and neither am I. So right from the very beginning, one of the first things to get clear that the Buddha said is, is, no, no, that's actually not the way it is. The things that we do have consequences, direct impacts on ourself and on others in our life. And the choices that we make determine uh, how things are going to go, you know? So... Um, and it's interesting because on, even though we know this on one level, I think that on some level it's, uh, I think we still live in the, the belief that somehow things don't really matter as much. You know, so um, I, was, I was living uh, up in Canada for a while, a few years ago at a monastery and um, I have some uh, digestive challenges that I've lived with for, for quite a few years that limit the kinds of foods I can eat. And, uh, you know, when I'm um, listening to my body and eating the foods that are healthy for me, it, everything's fine. And if I get a little bit lax, and many of you have probably, not many, but you know, some, some of you know what I'm talking about if you have a similar situation in your, in your life. Get a little bit lax, then... Uh, becomes challenging, can have a lot of pain and uh, unpleasant symptoms. And um, so living at a monastery, uh, it's not a lot of choice <laughs> around certain things. It's a lot of renunciation that one lives with. And so that can be challenging. And, you know, on top of all the renunciation, having all kinds of food restrictions, uh, I was uh, learning a lot about how to relate, um, 
how to relate to those restrictions in a way that's uh, that's skillful that doesn't that doesn't lead to this kind of wild swinging back and forth of you know indulging on the one hand and then uh, I mean sorry like you know really repressing everything and then swinging back to the other st- extreme and oh to heck with it and just giving up right this the kind of like the diet uh, cycle right. So to make a long story short, I fell off the wagon <laughs> for like a few days. It wasn't just once, right? Ice cream and cakes and all the things that are really bad for me. And uh, my body reached a certain tipping point, And it was like the floodgates opened, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, God. And, you know, I'd been really healthy for like a couple of years. And I called my doctor and back in the States, and I was like, you know, ah, oh, what did I do, you know? Do you think that I, like, is it possible that I, like, undid all of the work that I had built up over the last couple of years, like, healing my gut in just these two or three days, right? And it was a moment of really recognizing, like, our actions have effects. You know, you can undo years of work in a few seconds, you know, depending on what it is that you're, that you're looking at. The direct consequences that we experience. If you clear cut an old growth forest, it's not coming back for hundreds of years, you know? That's, that's the way it is. Our actions have consequences. We can lose our life. You know, you drive a little bit carelessly, you can take a life or lose your life. This world is not, it, it's not a test. It's not a joke, you know. Anything can happen and you can't go back. That's the world we live in. So this is the, this is, this is the first kind of uh, point, <laughs> or the second point, actually. The first point the Buddha makes is the middle way. But the, the next point he makes is, our actions have consequences. Don't take them for granted. So we come to meditation practice and we hear about enlightenment or awakening or you know, we think about transcending this world or seeing through the self and you know, all of these fascinating, kind of sometimes inspiring ideas, but let's not lose touch with the reality that there's real suffering in the world in our lives and the lives of others, very, very, you know, concrete material suffering, and that our actions have effects, you know. The things that we buy, the choices that we make, the words that we speak, all have direct impacts on our own life and, and indirect impacts on others' lives. So this, this, this is the context for the whole path. So this is pointing to a very kind of specific relationship with embodiment with being alive it's saying be careful because what we do matters so let's be careful about our life about our words our actions our thoughts so this is the first level of right view this is the first uh, first aspect of it And we see this in our meditation practice. We see the results of this. So, uh, you know, if we, if we have a day 
with a lot of uh, a lot of busyness and tasks and rushing you get you get to your meditation cushion at the end of the day you feel the effects of that directly you know the mind is is uh, frazzled and tired and fragmented can't focus agitated right or if you've ever sat a retreat and you come on retreat those first two or three days you feel the effects of how we've been living right so um, so those effects are outward and then they're also inward not just on our body but on our mind so the ways that we live the things that we do have a, a an, leave an imprint or a residue on our consciousness and then when we come to meditate we, we experience those residues so if I said something sharp to my sweetie and then I come to meditate if I'm meditating properly and my heart's open that's gonna come back I'm gonna feel that oh that didn't feel good you know now I have to sit I have to sit in the in the uh, the remorse the the sourness of that impact. So our actions can begin to support our meditation practice when we, when we live with care, when we live with a kind of integrity and a sense of uh, consideration for one another. So this is the first aspect of this view, getting the map oriented right. The next aspect goes a little bit deeper. It's about how we, th- how we, view- how we look at our life, the lens through which we see things. And the Buddha was very specific about this. He encouraged us to see things in a uh, in a particular way. So usually, how do we see things? Usually, I think we see things in terms of ourself. Quite natural, you know, in terms of what I want and what I don't want. Who I like and who I don't like. What I want to be and what I don't want to be. What I want to become in the future. What I, want to, what I don't want to become, how things should be, and how they shouldn't be. All the ideas, the opinions that we have, and the kind of, uh, a lot of times, the self-centeredness, and not necessarily, not even necessarily in a, in a kind of unethical way, right? We can be self-centered in a way that's harmful, you know, where we're, manipulating and controlling people around us or putting people down or but we can also be self-centered in ways that are that are less less harmful but still just very like the kind of natural tendency because of the way we experience time and space to assume that I am the center of the universe (laughs) right it's like I can't feel or see what you're feeling or seeing everything is experienced through this particular organism so so therefore the 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 sense that one gets is that this is this is where it's at and that everything else out there is less important 
So the Buddha suggests, okay, rather than viewing things in all of those habitual ways, he said, view things in terms of what's difficult and how that difficulty ends. So the, the core teaching of the Buddhist path is that our hardship in life, the difficulty we experience, comes from ignoring certain truths. It comes from a kind of, uh, on one level, conscious, willful ignorance, and on a deeper level, a sort of unconscious, um, reflexive ignorance, not seeing certain truths. And so the task of meditation and the task of contemplative practice is to stop ignoring those truths and to begin to see them more clearly and live in line with them such that we put an end to the unnecessary hardships in human life. So the injunction is to see things in terms of, of difficulty or stress or suffering and its end. So to look and see what is where, where is there difficulty? Where am I struggling? Where am I not at ease and at peace? Where is there hardship in my life? And how does that come to be? What's that resting on? How is it, how is it put together? And how does it end? What, what are the, when does it, when does it ease? When does it fade? what brings that about, and to start to study that pattern in, in, in every way, small and large, to see, you know, when am I stressed out? How does that come to be, and how does that end? When is there sadness? How does that come to be, and when does it end? When am I really in pain? And how does that come to be, and how does it end? So this is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, of really looking through this particular lens. So rather than seeing things in terms of me and myself and my agenda and what I want and what I don't want and the way things should be and what, you know, how he should be and she shouldn't be and what I will be and what might happen, instead of that whole world of projection and fantasy and should and shouldn't, to just to, to start to attune ourselves to that which we would rather avoid, right? I don't want to feel that uncomfortable stuff, you know? I don't want to feel helpless about climate change. I don't want to feel overwhelmed about the political situation or the economic situation or my mortality or my health, like... No, I don't want to feel those things. Just, just make them stop. Make them go away. The Buddha is actually saying, no, look at that, turn towards that. Find the resilience and the resource inside that allows you to, little by little, not all at once, begin to include that, to actually look squarely at it and face it and say, what is this? What's going on here? Where am I suffering here? How am I, how am I oppressed by this? 
And how does, how does that work? What's the mechanism? And that we can actually start to understand those mechanisms in our own mind. And the more we understand them, the less bound we are by them. The less bound we are to repeat them in ourselves, in our relationships, in our community, and in our society. So this is the this is the second level of this um, this view, this perspective, making sure that we're holding the tool properly, that it's oriented in the right way. So when we come to our meditation practice, if you have a daily practice or you come here to CIMC once a week, when you sit down to meditate, what's the what's the view? Right? Are we coming with with a, um, an assumption or an idea of like, you know, now I'm going to get calm and concentrated, right? Or are we coming with the view, let me study how I suffer and how it ends. Not to, not to, be, not to like be masochistic, but to actually free ourselves, to actually lighten the heart, to learn more about the ways that we tie ourselves up in knots, right? Have you noticed? <laughs> you know, so we can make a problem out of anything. So I had a, I had a work situation recently. Something, I'm not going to go into details, um, partly just out of respect for the other people involved and so forth, but I was right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I suffered for uh, a few hours, maybe half a day. And then I said to you, know, I, said, I noticed it. I said, you know, this isn't worth it. I just put it down. Do I want to be right? and suffer <laughs> because they should have and how could they and don't they know better and what were they thinking you know and really after this many years that's what happens right? all, all of the stories and the indignation and and to just see that to see the heart contracting to see that the formation of of me and the view and the idea and to just step back, to just widen, get wider in the awareness and go, oh, this is what happened. Do, you know, do I want to be right or do I want to be free? Just, oh, well, <laughs> you know, the bit in the grand scheme of things, okay. You know, it can feel the impact of it. I can feel the the discomfort, but I don't have to feed it, right? I don't have to, I don't have to rub salt in the wound and get all tight, tight about it and keep thinking about it and then talk to each of my friends and tell the story over and over again to prove how right I am and how wrong they are. You just put it down. Just end 
Just let it end, and it's over. And that comes, that, this is not a, this is not a, a thought trick. This is not a, this is not like, oh, just think this way and everything will be okay. This is a, this is like a, it's like an Aikido move in the heart. There's a certain muscle in our consciousness or our spirit that can let go, that can put things down instead of getting bound up and entangled in them. And we actually have to study that process. We actually have to study with, with a, a, a kind and interested awareness. How does that, how does that work? How does my heart and mind get entangled, ensnared, and, and wound up with things, twisted around, cramped and narrow? And how, and how does it untangle? How does it loosen? How does it open? What does that feel like? And over time, by studying that process, the opening and the closing and the closing and the opening, it's like we learn, we learn, we learn that, that, that movement that's not a movement. It's a releasing. It's not a doing. It's kind of a, almost just like a quiet waiting. And then things soften on their own. So this is the second aspect of the, of the view, the orientation to life, really, that the Buddha encourages, is to see things in terms of what's difficult and how that difficulty ends. To see where am I not free? in my own life, in my relationships, in this society. And then to investigate that, to really stay with it. And in order to do that, there's a lot of skill that needs to be developed. You know, you can't just, we can't just go into those places um, unprepared, right? We need to develop a certain kind of resilience, a certain kind of strength, of heart to look honestly um, at our lives. But this is the orientation. So these, um, these two aspects to our approach to meditation and the, the spiritual path um, they in and of themselves have um, nourishments, you know. Like if you want to grow, uh, if you want to grow vegetables, you need you need the right soil and sun and water. You need certain things to nourish it. So, um, this particular pers- these particular perspectives come about through certain conditions. And so it's helpful to know, okay, how can I support these perspectives that our actions matter 
and to see things through the lens of uh, the um, the coming together of of difficulty and its dissolution. So the the, the Buddha pointed out two things. He said that are uh, the most helpful for uh, for deeply remembering this perspective, for really getting it ingrained, right? Like, you know, you know your own phone number. You're not going to forget that. Just like it's it's right there. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to try hard to remember this particular way of looking at things. So the first is he said, he said, so there's an internal support and an external support for this this perspective. So the internal support is our own wise and careful attention. So really paying attention. You know, not just sleepwalking through life, not just going through the motions, but really looking at things. You know, when when we're you know, walking to go get the bu- to go catch the bus, are we just lost in kind of the um busyness of our mind and planning and lists and the internal narrative? Or are we paying attention to what's happening? Is there actually awareness present? How am I living right now? You know? What qualities am I encouraging in myself? Am I aware of the people around me? So living with a, a kind of... Uh, not just any kind of awareness, but sometimes it's called deep attention or careful attention. It's a very um, uh, kind of considered way of exploring and contacting what's what's happening from moment to moment. And, you know, we aim for this, right? <laughs> It's not possible maybe for a lot of us to have this quality of deep attention all the time. But we can do it a lot more than you'd think, actually. There's a lot of downtime in the day where we're just moving from one thing to another or doing mindless tasks like washing the dishes or making a sandwich or getting dressed or taking a shower or brushing our teeth you know, or walking to the car or waiting in traffic or sitting on the bus. There's a lot of that time every day. And so, and a lot of it, we, we fill that time with our devices, getting on the phone. You know, we can use that time to just pay attention and look more closely at experience. And when we look more closely at experience, what's revealed, we start to see that actions have effects, you know. <laughs> oh, I stayed up late last night watching a movie. I have less energy today in the meeting. You know, we start, start to put the pieces together. We start to see, wow, why am I so stressed out? Oh, that person, I got that email, and it really triggered me, and I didn't take a moment to stop. And now for the whole afternoon, I've been a little bit on edge. We start to see the arising of difficulty and where it comes from when we pay attention. So this is, um, this is the internal cause for the arising of right view, deep attention, careful attention. 
So then there's an external cause also. You know what it is? The company we keep. And not just any company. Spending time with wise companions, spiritual friends. This is, uh, I want to read a quote from the suttas. With regard to external factors, I do not see any other single factor like friendship with wise people as doing so much for a person in training who has not yet attained the goal but remains intent on unsurpassed safety from suffering. A person who, who is friends with wise people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. So there are many passages in the text where the Buddha talks about the importance of the company we keep, our community, our friends, as having a very profound influence on our mind. Talks about it as he says, just as the um, just as the the light of the dawn is the precursor of the rising of the sun, so spending time with wise friends is the precursor to realizing the Eightfold Path. One who spends time with wise friends will cultivate the Eightfold Path. And so this, uh, this factor is talked about as um, specifically one of the causes for the arising of right view. Because we learn from each other. That's one of the ways that we learn. You know, we learn by paying attention to things and looking deeply, and then we learn in this way, you know. We learn uh, through reading, through listening, through spending time with people, and hearing, hearing other perspectives and then considering them. And so does that make sense to me? You know, turning it over, thinking about it, and then, and then taking it in. So the two work together in that way. The things that we hear, that we receive from others in our lives, then we, we apply this careful attention to it and consider it, and then it starts to become our own wisdom. It starts to become embodied. So these are the these are these two levels of how we look at things are really important in terms of our meditation practice and really living living this path. I was gonna um, I was gonna share some more about a few of the other qualities that are uh, really helpful in in our approach in how we uh, you know how we hold the how we hold the tool, um, but I want to have a good amount of time for questions, so I'll just I'll just touch on them briefly um, because I think they're really important and maybe don't get talked about uh, as as much. Um, in this context. So I'll just mention them briefly, and then we can have some time for discussion questions. <clears throat> so, uh, so obviously what I've been talking about is right view, which is the first factor of the Eightfold Path, for those of you who study. The next factor of the Eightfold Path, which is also very much about our approach to meditation practice and 
the cultivation of the heart and the mind is um, sometimes translated as right thought or um, right aim or right intention. And so this is about how we're, how we're, how we're holding or approaching what's happening. So the, the view is, is, is the perspective and then right thought and right aim is, is really about the qualities in our heart that we bring to bear. You know, so um, to go back to the toothbrush analogy, like wrong view would be trying to brush your teeth with the handle. <laughs> you know, it's like you just totally like don't get the way the tool's supposed to be used. It's not oriented right. The, this factor of right aim or right in, intention or thought would be, would be like gripping the handle really tightly and like really like, you know, just bearing down. It's like that there's not the right um, kind of finesse or relationship of, of energy and intention in the way the tool's being used. So the Buddha pointed to three intentions that are really essential in how we use the tools of meditation practice and the path. And so... Um, these, the first is kindness, or the way it's talked about is non-ill will, kindness. And the second is compassion, or non-cruelty. And so this, I think this is really important to reflect on. I don't know about you, but I mean, I spent many years meditating beating the heck out of myself. I was trying to think how to say that without cursing. <laughs> Just really beating myself up, you know? And I actually had this a turning point. I was um, visiting a Chinese monastery in New York where Bhikkhu Bodhi stays, and I was sharing with him some of the challenges that I was having. And he kind of thought about it, took it in for a while, and then he said, you know, there's a, there's a passage in the suttas where the Buddha says, one should not despise oneself. It was very powerful for me to hear that at that particular time. One should not despise oneself. I think there's this way sometimes when we meditate, we can be so hard on ourselves, have a lot of ill will, even cruelty towards ourselves when we meditate or just even in our life. And that's, that's not holding the tool properly. That's bringing the wrong energy to it. It's not going to be helpful. So these two qualities of kindness and compassion are essential. The third quality that the Buddha pointed to, um, which is revolutionary, is renunciation. And so this, this radically transforms our approach to, to life. To say that to to say that rather than trying to get all of the good stuff, what's what's it like to have as the orientation to let go, an orientation of simplicity. Our whole economy and society is founded on the opposite motivation. It's uh, like the extraction model to extract as much wealth and resource and profit and pleasure out of anything and everything. Just suck it all up. And so the, the, whole, the whole path is the, is the opposite um, movement. 
is to actually relinquish, to release, to let go. And so again, this is essential in terms of when we come to the meditation cushion, are we coming with what Suzuki Roshi calls a gaining idea? I'm going to get something versus I'm here to let go, to discover what that what that is. So I'll stop here and um, offer this for your reflection. Thank you for your kind attention. Mm-hmm.